And welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Lion Wait from the Akron rock band Relaxer. The group is our featured Ohio musical artist this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast and we'll tell you a little bit more about them, where to see them perform, and let you listen to the whole song. But for now... It's time to throw another log on the fire, campers. We've got a sad mystery out of Akron. A 28-year-old case that really needs to get solved. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me, as always, is Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent some 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Steve, I also wanted to mention our featured band tonight was a special request from our armchair detectives who thought Rachel Johnson would have been a big fan of this group if she were alive today. Oh, well, I'm guessing Rachel Johnson is our mystery tonight, then. Yes, yes. The mystery is who took her life at such a young age and in such a terrible way. And to help us with this story, we're going to chat with a girl who was just two years old when her mom was killed and a woman who has been trying to put fresh eyes on this cold case during this past year. Well, before we get to them, you better lay out the facts of this case. You did say it was 28 years ago? Yes, yes. We're going back to 1991. And Rachel Johnson was a pretty 24-year-old single mom with a zest for life. Rachel grew up in East Akron and graduated from East High School, but had recently moved to the Akron suburb of Talmadge. There, her world revolved around her daughter, Caitlin. But Rachel, she was still young herself, and she loved to hang out with friends, dance, and listen to music. Heavy metal was her favorite. She often could be found in local dance clubs and bars, especially those featuring her favorite bands. And that's what Rachel was doing Friday night, March 29, 1991. She and a friend caught up at a couple of Akron bars, El Cid and the Brooklyn's Cafe, And sometime after 1 a.m., the pair decided to head home. The women left the Brooklyns, traveling in the car of Rachel's friend. Rachel was the passenger. And partway home, the car got a flat. Now, the friend continued to drive on the deflated tire. They weren't in a particularly good area of town, and she didn't want to stop there in the middle of the night. But the car was filling with the smell of burning rubber, and Rachel panicked. She made a move to get out of the car, But her friend held her back, and then they argued about what to do. The friend would tell police later that Rachel said, Let me out of this car. I'm not burning up in any car. So the driver pulled over at Faust and Dan Streets in North Akron, and Rachel got out. I could see how the smell would kind of get irritating after a while. might freak somebody out, especially men, you know, that dark out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she, I got the impression from what the friend had said that, 
she really felt like the car could be catching on fire. So anyway, the, the driver pulled over, and at the same time, another car pulled over and parked behind them. It was a rusted beater of a car. The friend recalled wondering if Rachel knew the occupants because the friend asked Rachel if she would really prefer to get in that beat-up car than stay in hers, even with the the burning flat tire. But the truth is, the friend really didn't know the car or its occupants, and she never saw Rachel get into it. Okay, so it was more of, well, if you don't like my car, why don't you get in that junk behind me that just pulled up? Something like that? or um, Yeah, well, I actually got the impression uh, secondhand from what the friend had said that she presumed Rachel was going to make an attempt to get in that car. Okay. So, but in- instead, once Rachel made a plane, she was not going to return to the car with a flat tire. Her friend drove off, and what else could she do? And it was the last time Rachel was seen alive. Just a few hours later, at 7.52 a.m. that morning, Akron police received a call. There was a body in the middle of the street in the 700 block of Weller Avenue. It was a woman, partially nude, and the body was on fire. The body was on fire? Yeah. And after her comment about not wanting to burn up in the car, it seemed seems, kind of prophetic. Anyway, first responders put out the fire, but the body smoldered for another 45 minutes before the coroner could obtain it for an autopsy. When that work was done, the coroner's investigation concluded Johnson had been raped repeatedly, stabbed 10 times in the chest. She'd been beaten and slashed across the neck as well. You did say 45 minutes. That is a very long time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a sight that must have been. It just makes me think that it was set on fire just pretty pretty recent when the cops got there. I, don't know. I, I would think so. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Police Sergeant William Wright, he echoed the sentiments of everyone who had seen the site when he said, this is the most vicious thing I have ever seen. Well, Johnson's body was identified through dental record, and they found her friend, and after interviewing the friend, Police leaned heavily on the idea that the flat tire was no accident. It was well shredded from being traveled on, but it seemed likely to have been part of the killer's plan. Wow. Actually, that's what I thought of as soon as I heard they were on a flat tire and somebody had pulled up behind them. I thought this sounds like it's been choreographed. Yeah, somebody might have slashed the tire and then waited for them to stop. So was it somebody she knew? Well, two months later, a murder in Illyria had police wondering if they'd found a promising suspect. A 21-year-old man named Daniel Wilson had confessed to killing a woman in Elyria. He had picked up Carol Lutz, a 24-year-old woman from Amherst, at an Elyria bar. He put her in the trunk of her own car, an Oldsmobile Cutlass, and drove around with it for hours. At one point, he even stopped to let her out to use the bathroom, then made her get back in. And he shared a cigarette with her while she sat in the trunk, hood open, while she begged to be let go, and he contemplated what to do. As dawn arrived, he apparently decided he didn't want to risk arrest for kidnapping. So he closed the trunk on her, soaked a blanket in gasoline, tossed it into the car, and set it alight while listening to Carol's muffled pleas. What's going on? What's going on? 
Uh, Wilson was a bad seed. He grew up in a troubled home in Elyria, the son of an abusive alcoholic father, and he grew up to be violent himself. He was remembered by those who knew him as a kid who was always fighting with students and getting into scrapes with teachers. One teacher said, Danny was an extremely angry youth. You could see anger burning in his eyes. When he was 14, he broke into the home of an elderly neighbor, 81-year-old Frank Sebula of Valeria. He beat him with a candlestick, ripped the phone from his wall, and left him on the floor, unable to call for help. Mr. Sebula died six days later. From a can- Wow. Yeah. That was a vicious beating, for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Wilson, he was found guilty of that by the charge was delinquency of involuntary manslaughter, for which he only served three years. Now, in the Akron case, police found a complete DNA profile of Rachel Johnson's attacker, and police hoped it would connect Wilson to the case. But 1991 was very early in the science of DNA. There were only 10 analysts in the entire country trained to do DNA comparisons. That's crazy. Yeah, so it it took nearly a year to get the results back. And when they finally got the results, they were inconclusive. Wilson stayed at the top of the suspect list, however. There was some compelling circumstantial evidence. For one, it seemed particularly strange that Wilson had moved from Kent, which was just east of Talmadge, where Rachel lived, to the more distant community of Illyria, where he had originally come from, and he had done this the very day after Rachel's death. Oh, that is that's that's, interesting. It's a little strange. This is even stranger. They also interviewed an employee at a gas town in Stowe who knew Wilson and reported that on the morning Wilson killed Carol Lutz, Wilson stopped at the gas station driving the Oldsmobile, apparently while Carol was still in the trunk, and he was acting really strange. What made this suspicious in the Johnson case was that the employee said Wilson also stopped at that gas town the morning Rachel Johnson was killed. Again, he was acting strange, but this time he was driving his own beat-up car. So the same gas station both times. Yeah, almost like he had a routine. Mm -hmm. But while the police saw similarities and patterns in the Lutz and Johnson cases, there was never enough evidence to actually tie them together. Wilson confessed to killing Carol Lutz, but always denied having anything to do with Rachel Johnson and he was executed for Carol's death in 2006. There was one other possible suspect profile. In 1993, so that's two years after Carol and Rachel were both murdered, a prostitute in Canton was killed by being stabbed and set on fire, then left in the street to die. Now, Wilson, he was already in jail, so that wasn't on him. So police couldn't help but wonder, is it possible there was a serial killer out there whose M.O. included burning his victims? Anyway, police had artist sketches of two men seen in the area where the Canton victim, that was 24-year-old Christina Warrens, was killed. But they were never found, and no arrests were ever made in that case either. You know, uh, I wonder if Wilson had anything to do with it, because there's a lot of people who are on death row who you know, will admit to another, like Ted Bundy did, will admit to something just to try to keep themselves alive. And he never did that. 
Unless he just really wanted to die. You're talking about admitting to the Johnson case. To the Johnson case, case. right. Yeah. So. Well, he's been executed, so there's no chance of going back and and Mm. trying to get him to say that. I was going to ask if he was still alive, because it would be interesting if he would admit it to any of the family. Yeah. I know, so that's sad in that respect, because I kind of wish I his last word on him, but... Right. Well, I mean, his last word was, no, he didn't do it. But, right. you know, when you, when you execute somebody, you give up the opportunity to ever go back right. and revisit questions. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. All right, Paula. Well, this might be a good time to chat with our special guest today to get a little bit more of an insight into this case. So why don't you introduce him? Okay, with us tonight, we have two special guests. We have Caitlin Pusakoulis, who was the three-year-old daughter left behind by Rachel when she was murdered in 1991. She's holding up two fingers, two years old. And Caitlin, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Uh, Thank you for coming. And we also have with us Leslie Rarick. Leslie is uh, works at a background screening company. Leslie, I'm really intrigued about why this story got your attention. Had you ever done this before, got a hold of a, of a story and just wanted to follow it? Uh, no, Paula. Um, this is my first foray into kind of being an armchair detective. The story was brought to my attention by a cousin of mine who attended high school with uh, Rachel. Oh, uh, now Rachel went to East High School, Mm -hmm. so they went to East High School together. Mm -hmm. How did he bring it up? Well, his ex-girlfriend was very uh, close with Rachel, and they all, you know, hung out with each other and lived near each other. Um, It's affected him a lot over the years. He went to middle school with her and then high school, and he's brought it over the years to my mother. Recently, he had mentioned it to me last year in February, and it, it just... Like I said, I had this like psychic connection with it. I felt, you know, I was angry and sad, and um, I felt like it was a story that deserved to be told. And I, I think you told me this kind of reminded me like this could have happened to you. I mean, she wasn't doing anything that was really out of the ordinary for a young woman back in the early 90s. Oh, absolutely. In my 20s, I, I, it could have happened to me in a different situation. You know, being, you know, intoxicated, you're in a car, the tire blows, uh, smoking, you just want to get out and and get home. You know, it was Easter weekend. She wanted to get back to her daughter, Caitlin. You know, she was, I think, had a heightened sense of uh, a fear at that moment. And I could relate to that. Now, at some point in 2018, your interest Mm -hmm. on this occurred and you reached out to Caitlin So, Caitlin, tell me how you met Leslie and how that came about. I was actually on vacation, and I had received a Facebook message from her asking to um, get in touch with my dad, who is not on Facebook. I just kind of blew it off. A couple months later, it it was a couple months, Mm -hmm. I had Googled it. Uh, you had Googled your mom? Yeah, I Googled her name just to see, you know. When, I did that every once in a while, check and see, like, if there was anybody posting about it. And then I had come across Leslie's Reddit post and made a comment on that. And then uh, she had reached out me out to me again. So for our listeners, Reddit is an online forum where people go on and 
talk about a lot of things, and at Reddit in particular, they talk a lot about unsolved murder cases, missing persons cases. So you Googled her, and you find this link to Reddit talking about her case, and it's Leslie who has posted. Right. Okay, so then you reached out to Leslie then. I believe so. We talked on Facebook, maybe? She wrote a comment under the Reddit sub, and I replied... It, you know, that it was me who contacted her earlier on Facebook. And about five minutes later, I sent her another Facebook message and we sort of got the ball rolling from there. Now, since then, I know you, the two of you have interviewed a lot of people. You have looked up documents and reports. Uh, you went to the library and did some research. Uh, Caitlin, tell me what was inspiring you. You're 30 years old now. You had not really done this before uh, on your mom's case. Tell me about what was inspiring you now at this point in your life to want to look into it more. Um, What inspired me is the DNA technology that I was reading about online. I I did know that they did have DNA of a person who killed her. So I I just kind of got interested in what I would have to do to to push it forward, to have somebody look into it, to see what testing I could get done, find out any information, because um, I had never talked to the detective or anything or really even asked anybody about it. So so you paid a visit to the police. I went to the detective's bureau and told them who I was, and they, they got the detective uh, on the case to come out right then and, and chat with me, and I was with my fiancé, Patrick. He, he was there. Now, is there hope now? Have they told you something that has given you hope that this case is still solvable in terms of technology? Yes. Yes. He said that they have a full DNA profile. So there's something called familiar DNA, and he was going to uh, see about getting that done. It was on his list of uh, cases that he'd like to have done, but he said, you know, now that a family member had actually came in and talked to him about it, that he could move it up the priority list a little faster. Oh, well, thank goodness for your interest. Uh, Leslie, you've been looking into this, and you have talked to the detectives. Do you want to explain a little bit about familial DNA and, and what the hope is there that could happen? I just wanted to, you know, thank the Akron police because they did push it through to the Ohio Bureau of Crime Investigation. It was, I, I believe, from what Caitlin has told me, one of three cases that they decided to take a test for this new familial DNA. It wasn't actually, it's three cases from Ohio. This is the only Akron case that they could do. Yes, the only Akron case. What I believe they're going to, I I looked on the uh, BCI website, and they do a Y chromosome testing, which would be male familial DNA. And I can't say for 100% certainty this is the test that they're running, but um, if any one has been, any male has been incarcerated in the state of Ohio and a hit, you know, comes up where the the killer, Rachel's killer's DNA matches someone in the system, they may be able to start there and narrow down their search. If that doesn't yield any results, who knows, maybe they'll bring in an outside company like Paragon or I use GED match. Uh, I, I'm not sure what the what their protocol on that is, but yeah. So we're looking forward to it. Uh, to some results coming out, maybe June at the earliest. So we're praying and and hopeful that we get a name 
out of that. Now, the there were two um, kind of running theories for a long time of what could have happened to Rachel. One involved Daniel Wilson. He denied it to the, the day he was executed, mm-hmm. having anything to do with this. Mm-hmm. The other theory... Um, was that there was a serial killer Mm -hmm. whose M.O. included burning his victims. Mm -hmm. Leslie, what do you think about those two theories? Are either of them, you know, real strong with you, or do you have another idea? Well, it's hard for me to move away from the Wilson theory. I I just have this feeling he might have been involved. I've always felt like there were more than one male uh, involved, but there is only one male DNA profile that they found on her. There's, you know, not a, a, a group of males. It's just one. But I've always, there's been enough evidence that he could have been involved. It's just his DNA was, his blood was taken um, while he was incarcerated. Uh, they sent it to the FBI labs, the um, the detective on file or the detective on the case at the time he had delivered it to the FBI headquarters and it came back inconclusive but he had the same type of car that was described just a total beater rusted out gray faded car seen that night at the gas station where the women had pulled over and he lived in the in Portage County could have been in that area at the time and you know he could have been with a a group of males we don't know so he's a good a good suspect and I know some of Caitlin's family believe he he is you know did have something to do with it even today so you know he was in Stowe that morning from 5 to 6 a.m. at a gas station acting strangely the day after she was was murdered or that the day she was found when she was murdered so there's a lot of coincidences around Daniel Wilson and we know that he moved from Akron to Elyria the day after her death which that's, is a strange thing that's correct yes he told an um, employee at Gastown uh, where he visited that morning Saturday the 30th you know, the day they found her body, um, that he was moving to Cleveland for a job. Caitlin, your mom kept a, a journal with some information in it where she discussed various relationships. And there was one relationship where she acknowledged being abused by someone. And I know that person was tested in the DNA, didn't come back. But knowing what you know about that journal and the other relationships in your mom's life, what do you think might have happened? Are you leaning at all towards Daniel Wilson or this unnamed serial killer, or do you think it could have been somebody that she knew and and actually had a relationship with? Yeah, I I honestly don't think it was Daniel Wilson. Um, We did uh, some research on him, and from what I've read, I mean... I honestly don't think he did it, but I could be wrong. I I believe that she knew the the person or persons because, you know, she was there. She was going to start walking home. A car pulls up. She got in the car. But I can't say that I know 100% she wouldn't get in a car of somebody that she doesn't know. So I think she knew them, but that's just my theory. 
You know, just as a as a person, you know, I would think if somebody's driving up next to you, yeah, I, I would obviously more likely get in the car with somebody that I recognized, even if it was an acquaintance, as opposed to somebody that was a complete stranger. Yeah, the reports at that time, um, the detective stated she was she told her friend she was going to someone's house that she knew in the area. So we don't know if she, there's no eyewitnesses to whether she picked up a payphone to call someone, took off on foot, got in a car. We really don't know what happened to her after she got out of her friend's car. Okay. Leslie, you were able to interview the girlfriend whose car Rachel got out of on that fateful night. Why don't you tell us about that interview from the friend's perspective? What happened that night? Yes, uh, we all sat in on that interview. Caitlin was there. Her um, best friend from high school, Danny, was there. And uh, we heard the story. Um, she, This individual met Rachel at the Brooklands at midnight, Rachel was already there. We don't know how she got there um, because she lived in Talmadge and wasn't driving. Someone picked her up and dropped her off there. The friend got to the bar and said, hey, I'm going over to El Cid. Um, Some friends of mine, their band is playing. Uh, There's going to be a party for an anniversary, a wedding anniversary. You know, why don't you come with me? You know, they went together. And they were at the bar. They danced. Rachel danced with a, a man, and he wrote his phone number on her hand. You know, we asked the the detectives about this, and they weren't sure uh, about that. They had to go check the file. But apparently someone wrote a number um, on her hand. She, I think, you know, the friend told us Rachel may have wanted to leave with the the man, and her friend said, no, you know, come with me you know, let's go, let's go home. So they left the bar about between maybe, I don't know, 145 and 215. And um, they followed the band members. They were in a van ahead of uh, Rachel and her friend. And they started down um, Talmadge and they turned right on Britain Road. And they followed the van till about Evans Avenue where that the Dreamers Dancer Bar is. And that's when the friend noticed she had a flat tire. So she signaled the people in the van ahead of her, her um, musician friends. And um, we spoke to them, and they just believed it was uh, like, a, like they were flashing goodnight or, you know, um, something to that effect. So they kept going. Rachel and her friend continued on with the, the, t- the flat tire, and they took quite a long convoluted route until they ended up on Dan Street, up on Dan, Glenwood, and Faust. Some sad, you know, parts of that route were once they got to, I think it was, uh, there were some apartments on North Street, which used to be, I think it was called, I can't remember what it was called. It's called Cascade Village now, but they, it was a dangerous part of town. And Rachel said at that point, you know, they were headed towards Howard Street on North. She said, turn around. I don't want to get raped in this area. So they turned around and headed back up North 
turned left onto Dan all the way to the top of the hill. Car was smoking, burning, you know, filled with smoke. And they got to the gas station. Rachel said, I don't want to burn up in this car. And she got out after some, you know, words were said between her and her friend. And that's the friend took off at that point to go pick up her kid at the babysitter. And Rachel went on her way to find a ride or um, head to a friend's house. So, Now, the friend told you that when Rachel got out of, a, out of the car, mm-hmm. there was another car that had pulled up. Yes, at that time, another car had pulled in behind them. And um, it was too dark to see in the car. But the friend um, indicated that she was confident it was a Honda Accord. Because her husband had just, they had just bought one for her husband. The car was completely rusted out on the bottom, and it was so dark that she couldn't see inside. Okay. And she did not see her friend get in that car? No, but she said, she did say to Rachel, why are you getting into that car? You know, even my car is better than that car. Um, Her friend was driving her husband's station wagon. And an interesting point is there was no uh, rearview mirror in the station wagon at that time. So she has stated that she doesn't believe anyone followed them. But without a rearview mirror, I'm not sure she would have been been able to tell. Yeah. Yeah. So I believe the Akron police, uh, the detectives, think that someone did follow them uh, from from the bar slash the tire, followed them from there. Caitlin, you had to grow up without your mom. After your mom died, you went to live with your dad? Yes. Tell me a little bit about how things turned out for you. Well, I went to live with my dad, which I was always a daddy's girl. So grew up in the Heights. You went to East High School, uh, like your mom? Yes, I went to East High School. Graduated in, I was in the class of 06. I did end up graduating a little early. And you've stayed in the area. You're still in Akron. Yes, still in Akron, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> have two boys, Devin and Mason. They're oh, wonderful. Uh, 7 and 13 now, so, yep. All right. Good ages. Good yeah, <laughs> do a lot of sports, so. Huh? And... Uh, it must have been hard growing up without your mom. As a youngster, did you dwell very much on how your mom died, or did your dad kind of shelter you from that, the details of that? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I knew she was dead, and I I don't think I really knew how it had happened, though. Like, nobody straight up told me. I remember asking as a child what happened and my dad had just kind of told me that she was beaten and somebody had hurt her real bad and she had died but you know I didn't know all the details until I um you know actually I think I googled it mm-hmm. as a you know I think that's how I really read it, everything that happened to her now that you know the details how important is it for you to get justice and and see this resolved. Uh, very very important. I I feel like uh, it should have been solved a long time ago, and you know somebody may still be out there that is responsible for this. So I definitely want to see justice and uh, you know maybe get some answers. I know I won't get all the answers, but 
maybe mm -hmm. get a little closure on that. So, yeah, I remember as a kid, you know, I would meet a new guy or something like, a, you know, an adult. And I would always be like, oh, I wonder if that's who did it. You know what I mean? I, you'll always suspect everybody. Oh, yeah. Um, during the, the Wilson investigative investigatory period, uh, there was Regina Brett wrote an article about Daniel Wilson, and she had read that an affidavit had been filed in Lorain County Court, and someone had, because they were trying to connect the two cases of Carol Lutz and Rachel, someone who was a witness that night to Rachel's up, you know, abduction or disappearance, te you know, testified or, or gave an affidavit to the prosecutor's office. I don't think this was ever presented in court that there was someone in a car beeping, honking their horn at Rachel. So someone was trying to get it, get her attention. Uh, we've also heard that there were some city workers from Green, the, um, you know, the, the city of Green, who had thought they were watching a domestic dispute. I and mean, I don't know if that would have been Rachel arguing with her friend or with a, someone in the car. Um, we're still trying to get that in, uh, incident report. Yeah, the detective had said that she was arguing with the person driving the car. Right. Not, yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the car that pulled in behind her friend's car. Oh, oh right. got it, got it, got it. But okay. wow. those people, they were at the light there. They had seen it happen, and they thought it was a domestic thing, and they just they didn't want to be involved, so they drove off. So she was never seen actually getting into the car, but most likely she did or was yeah. pulled into yeah. the car mm -hmm. that pulled up. Yeah. Yeah. How closely did that car match the description that the Gastown employee gave police? They said it was really beat up, and the yeah, Gastown lady it, said yeah, Daniel Wilson drove. Yeah, um, actually, um, the Honda Accord, uh, Rachel's, you know, Rachel's friend said that she believed it was a Honda Accord. Wilson drove what I think was a Chevette's. Um, a lot of those cars looked very similar then. They had very similar body shapes. His was a complete clunk it was a total clunker and the gas town employee who had spoke with him early that morning on march i mean this march 30th that saturday morning when he showed up at gas town she said it, it was just you know it, his car looked totally just demolished it was a piece of junk yeah okay. and that coincides with you know, Rachel's friend's story is that the car was rusted out and just a piece of junk. And, you know, they never actually seen Daniel Wilson in the bar, though. And the theory is right. the person was at the bar, El Sid's, mm -hmm. and followed him, maybe slashed tire, maybe fo and then followed him. Right. And right. nobody had seen Wilson there. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, We can't right. place and, him at the bar. And the detective did tell me, I know she said the DNA was inconclusive, but the detective told me it just didn't match. Okay, so it wasn't that we can't rule him out. It was right. inconclusive leading towards no way was it him. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was just going to say, I think the amount of overkill, it just makes me feel like it's someone that she knew. Or you know, her dad was a boxer, and, you know, Caitlin can probably say what type of boxer he was, but he was a tough guy, and she was tough. And I've always felt like she didn't go out without a real fight and the overkill I think is cause she just was not giving up she just didn't give up until she couldn't take it anymore you and know, she also 
wasn't able to run because she was uh, suffering from a broken leg that mm-hmm. was almost healed, but not yeah. enough. Okay, so she was still recovering from that somewhat. Yeah. How'd she break her leg? In a car accident. Okay. And that's also why she didn't have a car at the time, because she was waiting for her income tax to get, you know, she, a down payment on a Mustang. Okay. All right. That's good. Yeah. I mean, we're just asking if anyone out there has, you know, knows of a family member who might have been acting differently then, or you found that he, maybe he had a, a box of weird trinkets or earrings. I mean, she was missing clothing. She was missing an earring, a double cross earring. And um, they never found like her shoes, um, different items of clothing. So anyone in that North Hill area in those streets, if they remember seeing uh, such a long time ago, but blood or, or anything out of the ordinary or someone acting differently or a suicide that could have happened around then, a, man, a male who, um, you know, might have been involved in illegal activities. or We're just asking that, you know, people think back to that time. And call Akron Police. Yeah. They're the investigating yeah. agency. Yep. Well, that's it for tonight. Be sure to visit our website at ohiomysteries.com for photos and news clippings and more on this and every episode. And that brings us to tonight's featured musical artist. Relaxer is made up of Joe Scott on vocals and guitar, Jamie Stillman on guitar, Corey Heron on bass, and Brad Thorla on drums. Individually, these guys have been part of a whole bunch of area groups, including Uh, The Party of Helicopters, White Pines, Teeth of the Hydra, Sofa King Killer, Royal Bangs, and Drummer. Collectively, as Relaxer, they have shared stages with a wide range of bands, including The Shins, Unknown Mortal Orchestra, Retribution Gospel Choir, and I. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yes. (laughs) You could also follow them on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can also play their music at bandcamp.com. Now, on March 11, you can catch them at the Grog Shop up in Cleveland. If you're in Akron, mark your calendar for April 19 when they'll be at Thursday's Lounge and May 18 when they'll be at Annabelle's. That's my old neighborhood, the Highland Square area of Akron. Okay. After that, you'll have to wait. They're going to be touring in Japan by late May. Nice, Japan. All right. Have fun. You can find links to Relaxer and all of our featured musical artists on our website. But for now, just sit back and relax so we can play the full version of their song, Lion Wait. And we'll see you back here next week for a brand new Ohio Mystery.
I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements. And I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.